Articles by Desiring God The Happiest Family of All How Father and Son Glorify Each Other Written and read by David Mathis The happiest families can be surprisingly competitive. And not just in moments of play and recreation when we compete against each other in love and good humor, but all the more in the everyday contest to honor and bless one another. Outdo one another in showing honor, Paul writes for the whole church in Romans 12.10. And such a vision begins at home. And yet, the glory and joy of such a competition is far, far larger and more fundamental than even our homes and churches. We might view all of history as the Divine Father and His Son seeking to outdo one another in showing honor. Service is greatness, writes Donald MacLeod, and one may even ask whether the persons of the Godhead do not seem to vie with one another for the privilege of serving. It is an astounding and holy contest to trace through the pages of Scripture. And the story of the world, a story of their glory, that delights all those who have been welcomed into the greatest of families. One Great Design and Medium To marvel at the pronounced other orientation of the Father and the Son is not to minimize the God-centeredness of God, but rather to go deeper into it. God made the world to glorify Himself. This, in short, is God's one great design, as Jonathan Edwards preached in December 1744 in a sermon called Approaching the End of God's Grand Design. And yet, how much more can we say than simply this? Edwards says more. He also speaks of God's one grand medium, saying, the one grand medium by which he glorifies himself in all is Jesus Christ, God-man. Another way then, in fuller detail, to capture God's one great design, says Edwards, is this, quote, God made the world to present to his son a spouse in perfect glory from amongst sinful, miserable mankind, blessing all that comply with his will in this matter and destroying all his enemies that oppose it. And so to communicate and glorify himself through Jesus Christ, God-man, end quote. God's God-centeredness is not at odds with the centrality of Christ. In fact, we cannot have one without the other. One is the great design. The other, the grand medium. God glorifies himself through his son. Prompted by Edwards then, it is amazing to return to God's own word. See if the dynamic is there and watch with delight as our Father and our Lord Jesus vie with one another, as it were, seeking to outdo one another in showing honor. Father to glorify Son. Consider first that unexpected attribute of God's glory in the magnificent opening lines of Hebrews. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Only after noting this appointment 
does Hebrews add, through whom also he created the world. Before creation, the father appointed his son to be heir of it all. Then the father made all through him and for him. Paul backs it up in Colossians 1.16. All things were created through the son and for him. In other words, the father made the world to give it to his son. The father loves his son with a love so full, so thick, so deep, so abounding that he overflowed to make a world to make much of his son. The father made the universe and ordained all of history to unfold as it has to glorify his son. And that does not subtract, so to speak, from the father's glory, but only increases it in the increase of his son. As the father rightly pursues his glory in creation, he does so in and through the honor and praise of his son. So, in the fullness of time, the father sent his son in human soul and body, visibly and audibly, as fully man, without ceasing to be God, to come in stages into this great appointed inheritance. Son, glorified Father. Jesus, the God-man, then lived his human life in utter dedication to his Father. Rightly did the angels proclaim glory to God at Jesus' birth as the glory of the Father came to the fore in the life and ministry of the Son. In his state of humiliation, from manger to cross, the man Christ Jesus did not glorify himself, he says, but his words and deeds and the effect and intent of his human life were in full and glad submission to the will and glory of his Father. As he says without slant in John 8, 45, I honor my father. The son loves his father and he lived as man and strode toward the cross propelled by his great delight in and love for his father. He instructed his disciples to so live and bear fruit that his father would be glorified and he taught them to pray for the hallowing of his father's name. The night before he died, Jesus summarized in prayer, in John 17, 4, his life's work as, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. When he sees that at last his hour has come, Jesus prays in John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. As the sun draws near to the cross, we marvel to see both glories, a father and of son coming to the fore, not in competition, yet vying to accent the other. And strikingly, the son's lifting up, his coming into his glory as God-man, begins not only with his resurrection, but even in the shame and horror of being lifted up to the cross. Seeing that his hour has come, and that he will now move beyond his state of humiliation and enter into his glory with his great final act of self-humbling, Jesus says in John 13, 31, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Not only will the incarnate son continue to glorify his father as he has since Bethlehem, but he will do so in some new measure. And the father too 
will glorify his son. So entwined are the operations of the father and the son, comments D.A. Carson, that the entire mission can be looked at another way. One may reverse the order. They glorify each other. Father glorified son. In history's greatest twist, the cross, in all its unspeakable odium and shame, begins the incarnate son's uplifting. Here, at Golgotha, the father's anticipated glorifying of the son, as the son spoke of and prayed for, begins to be realized. The father had glorified his son in measure in his anointed life and ministry. But now, his glory comes decisively and fully at the cross and in his rising again. Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 3 will recognize that God glorified his servant Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Or, as Peter later wrote in his first letter, tying together the Son's resurrection and glorification, God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Christ's resurrection then, and with it his ascension and enthronement in heaven, ushers in a new era, the age in which we live, of the church and of the Spirit. If the Father seemed to outdo the Son in showing honor before creation, and the Son tried to outdo the Father in his earthly life, and the Father thrust the glory of his Son to the fore in history, in the terrible cross and triumphant resurrection, we now, as happy sons of God and brothers of Christ, thrill as our Father and His Son strive all the more for the privilege of exalting each other. Glories together now. The New Testament teems with the glory of God and the glory of Christ, as the saints see what Edwards called the great design and the great medium play out before our eyes. The glory we see in Christ, the eternal word made flesh in John 1, does not exclude the Father, but is glory as of the only Son from the Father. All God's centuries of promises, says 2 Corinthians 1.20, find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. The fruit of righteousness we bear in life in Philippians 1.11 comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, to the Father, through the Son. We serve, says 1 Peter 4.11, by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In our sufferings, in the present time, we look to the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And in the great doxology of Hebrews, we look to the Father who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ to work in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Perhaps best of all is Philippians 2, 9-11. God the Father has highly exalted his Son and given him, without envy or reservation, the name that is above every name. That is a stunning grant. One of the great realities the father must have dreamed up when appointing his son heir of all things and is now delighted to fulfill. 
And lest we worry that the holy contest has gone too far when we learn that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Paul has one last phrase to enchant us all in this happy family, to the glory of God the Father. Glories at the end. Even now, as Christ sits enthroned in heaven, the Father is putting all things under his feet. And when that great work of redemption is done, then, says 1 Corinthians 15, the Son himself will also be subjected to him. Does the Father then, in the end, become the last recipient of glory, while the Son finally outdoes him in showing honor? McLeod encourages us not to overlook the complexities of the situation. It is here, precisely with the end in view, that he observes how the Father and Son seem to vie with one another for the privilege of serving. As we strain to look into the future, we find depths and dimensions to the divine glory we should be careful not to reduce. On the one hand, Jude 24 and 25 tells us the Father will present us before himself. While in Ephesians 5:27, Christ presents the church to himself in splendor. So too, not only will the Son present the kingdom to the Father, as in 1 Corinthians 15, but the Father will present the bride to his Son as in Revelation 21. As McLeod observes, the idea of the Father handing over the bride to Christ is as definitive as that of the Son handing over the kingdom to his Father. Such twin emphases have for two millennia led the church to confess with Christ in John 10.30 and with all the blessed mystery, I and the Father are one. Glory enough to go around. What a thrill it is to see that our father and our elder brother are not miserly with divine glory. There is no scarcity of glory in the Godhead to be hoarded and rationed. Divine persons do not compete for glory, even as they vie to show each other honor. As Dane Ortland observes, the New Testament oscillates so frequently between the Son and the Father as the more immediate object of glorification, that it becomes unthinkable to envision one person of the Trinity being glorified and not the other person. Our God does indeed, as God, righteously and lovingly seek his own glory. But we dare not think of his glory as scarce or his fingers as tight. He does not give his glory to another, even as the Father of glory and Jesus, the Lord of glory, and so too the Spirit of glory vie with each other, outdoing one another in showing honor. Such competition makes for the happiest family of all. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.